Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs. Uh, today I have Professor Gilad Zuckerman. He's an author, professor at the University of Adelaide in Australia, and uh, he has a, a book on revivalistics. From the genesis of Israel to language reclamation in Australia and beyond. So I uh, want to talk to him about his work. So Gilad, thank you for coming. Thank you so much, uh, Richard, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to talk to you from Adelaide to New York. So tell me, what is uh, revivalistics? I've never heard of the term. Revivalistics is a new transdisciplinary field of inquiry, which looks at language revival from any angle possible and across the world. So I start with what I call Israeli, which is the result of the Hebrew revival. It's a hybrid language, which is based on Hebrew, of course, but also on Yiddish, which is the mother tongue, which was the mother tongue of most revivalists in Israel. And then I apply lessons from the Hebrew revival to the reclamation, reinvigoration, and revitalization of any language all over the world. So this is how I started. But revivalistics looks at language revival from the perspective of mental health. For example, is it the case that Aboriginal people who revive their heritage language feel better about themselves and each other, and therefore they improve their well-being? It looks at language revival from the point of view of law. Is it the case that when you lose your language, you should get money from the government to revive it? So this is a legal expertise here needed. It looks at language language revival from architecture. For example, I ask questions like, is it better to revive your ancient language using modern architecture? So for example, Aboriginal Australians would go to a kind of colonial building, and therefore they might feel that the government of Australia recognize their language, etc.? Or is it better architecturally to do it in the bush, in the outback, with no Western architecture, but rather under a tree with no computers? Or is it better from the perspective of architecture to conduct language revival in a modern building, but with Aboriginal or minority language design? So all these questions are revivalistic questions. What does it take to revive a language in general? I mean, are there any examples, any contemporary ones or... Is this such a rare thing that there's really no knowledge about it? That's a wonderful question. Firstly, what it takes. So I will start with what a revivalist must have. In my view, from my experience, a revivalist must have four characteristics. Firstly, he or she must have a heart of gold. The second one, 
you must have, and forgive my risque um, description, you need to have balls of steel. And of course, you can be a woman. I mean, balls, in, metaphorically speaking. The third thing, you need to have the patience of a crocodile. I don't know if you're aware of it, but crocodiles are some of the, well, the most patient animals that I have encountered. And the fourth characteristic a revivalist must have is the willingness to, unfortunately, sometimes uh, serve as a punch bag because you have to deal with people who ipso facto are unprivileged and disadvantaged because they had lost their language often due to linguicide, to language killing. So, of course, when your language is killed, just imagine that you are not allowed to speak American or American English. You're not allowed to express your emotions in English. Just imagine. I mean, it's ridiculous, but this is exactly what happened to many. When, when, is, when has that happened and where? So uh, the stolen generations uh, phenomenon, unfortunately, happened from 1901 until 1971, which happens to be the, num the year I was born. I was born in Israel, of course. But my friend Howard Richards, well, rest in peace, unfortunately, he died two years ago. He was stolen from his mother in Galignala, which is Port Lincoln, Air Peninsula. My friend uh, Lavinia Richards was stolen when she was a young woman. My friend Harry Richard, uh, Harry Dare, sorry, from Port Augusta, from uh, another place in uh, South Australia, was stolen when he was, I think, four. Uh, when when we say stolen, what we mean, a black car came, a black car of the Australian government. Some officers uh, came out of the car, asked the child, uh, are you Harry Dare? Is your father white, etc.? These are mixed, um, mixed blood or hybrid people. So the government stole them because the, the Australian government from 1900 to 1971 felt that it had the the obligation to save in quotation marks of course it's all quotation marks these children from the aboriginal way of uh, upbringing etc so i'm sure that many of the officers thought that they were doing the right thing but uh, needless to say uh, if you're taken from your mother when you're young and you're not allowed to speak your language etc etc i don't need to elaborate on the um, possible mental health effects and uh, the trauma the post-traumatic stress disorder etc but linguicide happened from the very beginning of colonization i can quote for you for example a person called anthony forster who in 1843 so what is it like almost 180 years ago 1843 said and i, I this is for my memory the natives would be sooner civilized if their language was extinct. In other words, Anthony Forster, who was a politician, uh, an Anglo colonizer in Australia, knew that when you kill the language, you kill the cultural autonomy, you kill the intellectual sovereignty, you kill the spirituality, you kill the soul the soul, metaphorically speaking. So he knew that. And by the way, he was right in his perspicacious insight, except that it is so cruel to do it because, I mean, why is there a superiority to the Western or European or Christian light over the Aboriginal spirituality? So I oppose the missionary activities in Australia and and therefore what is beautiful about what I do right now is I'm using a dictionary and this is answering the question that you asked me just uh, before the last one I'm using a dictionary that I found written in 1844 by Klamor Wilhelm Schumann who was a Lutheran German uh, missionary who came to Australia and wanted to um, Christianize the heathens in quotation marks. So he saw the Bangala as kind of people who did not know the light. I mean, the light, of course, for him was il padre, il figlio e lo spirito santo in Italian, the, the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. And of course, by writing down the dictionary of Bangala Aboriginal language in Air Peninsula, South Australia, actually did it in order to show them the light, the Christian light. But what I'm doing today, and I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor, uh, I'm Jewish, I'm secular, 
Uh, I have nothing to do with uh, with the German Christian missionary, Lutheran missionary, Klamor Wilhelm Schumann, but it is so beautiful that I'm using this dictionary together with the Bangala people in order to actually do the opposite, to learn from the dictionary about the aboriginal spirituality, the original spirituality that was subject to missionary activities. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. We use the dictionary that was written for, let's say, AIM X in order to achieve AIM minus X. This is the beautiful, if you want, symmetric redressing of the past but you ask me what one needs in order to revive a language so what you need you need a dictionary and in our case i have managed to get out of this dictionary 3500 words which is a lot just remember that the old testament that is considered by some as the epitome of literature etc the old testament only has 8000 words 2000 of which are hapax legomena in other words 2,000 words in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, appear only once. So it means that you only had 6,000 practically words, whereas in Bangala we have 3,500 words, which is a lot. It's more than half of the Old Testament. I also, you need a grammar, and uh, Klamor Wilhelm Schumann managed to write some kind of basic grammar, but I managed to extrapolate with re- related languages that some of them are still alive, like Adnyamatna. There are several elders who speak Adnyamatna. So I managed to extrapolate the entire grammar. So I know the entire grammar of Bangala. I know the dictionary, the, the lexis, the vocabulary of grammar. And then what you need also, you need four components. You need the custodians, the owners, the language owners. Bear in mind, language revival is not a laboratorial endeavor. You must liaise with the people the language belongs to. And in my case, I asked the Bangala people 10 or yeah, 10, 11 years ago, I asked them to come to my office, the five um, representatives, and I told them, look, I found a dictionary from 1844. I can revive your sleeping beauty, your dreaming beauty. Tell me what you think about it. And what they told me changed my life then. They said, we have been waiting for you for 60 or 50 years. This is why I decided to start. So this is the first component. The other component is, of course, the public sphere. You need a government that is advanced enough to understand the huge damage that linguicide has caused. You need a government to uh, help language revival, to define Aboriginal languages and minority languages as official languages of the country. Unfortunately, it has not yet been done in Australia. But if you look at Aotearoa, New Zealand, Aotearoa means the land of the long white cloud. But some Maori friends of mine uh, call it the land of the wrong white crowd, the wrong white crowd instead of long white cloud. And in Aotearoa, you have two official languages. Surprise! English is not an official language of Aotearoa New Zealand. It's Te Reo Māori, the language Māori, and also the sign language, the, the deaf, the New Zealand deaf language or sign language. These are two official languages. So the public sphere should define Aboriginal and minority languages and endangered languages as official languages of the state, of the country, of the region. And the, the other thing, you need to change the landscape, the landscape with a G, the linguistic landscape. So everything in Port Lincoln should be written not only in English, but also in Bangala. Quick question here. When a population is told they can't use their language, do the, is that where like pidgin languages come from you know they're they're forced to use the new language but they still adopt it to themselves at least in part and make a pidgin language if you like this podcast 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. No, because uh, what happened in Australia, the moment they were told that you're not allowed to use the language, they just resorted to English. And of course, they, you are right that often they, they speak what we call Creole or, or Aboriginal English, which could be the result of a pigeon. A pigeon, traditionally speaking, is when you, say, are um, a slave or you are a worker in the Caribbeans and you're trying, n- nobody tells you you're not allowed to speak your language, but you're just trying to communicate with your employers. And of course, the employers do not speak Chui or TWI, the Ghana, from the language from Ghana. So they speak, say, uh, English, or they speak uh, Dutch, or they speak French, or uh, because they're Creoles that come from many different languages, not just from English. But if I take, say, Jamaican Creole, you want to speak to them in their language, but your language is Twi, because you come from Africa. So you end up trying to speak their own language. But of course, nobody uh, put, takes you to an Ulpan, what we call Ulpan, like nobody teaches you the language properly, you know, like this is the grammar. So you just kind of end up speaking pidgin now pidgin meaning kind of you do not really have grammar it's just like you guitar me play now that yeah but then your kids are exposed to this pidgin and traditionally speaking they end up with a language that has grammar this language is called creole and therefore you do have creoles you're right happening a lot among aboriginal people who start who try to speak english and end up with a creole so yeah the answer is yes, but yes and no. So yes, you end up with a Creole, which uh, has a stage of pigeon. No, often the Aboriginal person who is stolen is taken to a foster family or to an orphanage, and there they just speak English. So if you are four and you were stolen from your mother and you end up in Adelaide in an orphanage, you will be a native speaker of English. So you will not have any problem of, uh, you know, like speaking a language that is different, etc. These populations just give up and they use the language that's imposed on them? Or is there a subset, a core group that you know tries to maintain their language somehow? And if so, what form does it take? Look, the, I have to say that out of 400, 400 Aboriginal languages in Australia, only 12 are alive and kicking. Alive and kicking meaning spoken by all children within the tribe. The only factor for endangerment is the percentage of children. It has nothing to do with number. I've heard many linguists saying, oh, this language is very endangered. It only has 3,000 speakers. Palpable poppycock. Pigeon Jara is not endangered and it has 3,000 speakers. But everybody, all the kids speak Pigeon Jara, which is an Aboriginal language in South Australia. On the other hand, in Africa, you have a language with 10 million speakers, which is severely endangered because the percentage of children is very, very low, the children who speak the language. But you have to understand when a child is taken at the age of four from his mother, this child is not going to continue to say, oh, should I speak my language? I mean, it's a child, you know, it's, it's uh, so. I, but I mean, back, like in, intact communities that were forced in mass to not use their language anymore. Is the dynamic different in those circumstances or is linguicide or linguicide, whatever you call it, is it always accompanied by theft of children from a community or breaking a part of the community? No, I have to say that you are right. Sometimes people who were told by the colonizers that they are worthless, useless, they are part of fauna, of the fauna, they're not human beings, which is exactly what happened in Australia and unfortunately in many other places of the New World. Sometimes these people themselves discard their own language because of uh, self-loathing. So, I mean, between us, the most tragic component of colonization is not the fact that the colonized hate the colonizers even 500 years later. It's the fact that the colonized, as a generalization, hate themselves. Why do they hate themselves? Because think about the Pygmalion effect. If you tell a child, you are stupid, you're a moron, the child will eventually believe your words, even though your words are stupid. If you tell a child you're a genius, there is more chance that the child will become a genius. The same with colonization. You conquer a country, 
and you tell the people there, you are animals. After a while, and this is the tragedy, it trickles down. Of course, I'm generalizing. I'm not, at, I'm not at all saying that you cannot find colonized people who are the most uh, self-confident people on earth, etc. I'm generalizing. Don't forget, I'm a linguist. A linguist who does not generalize is a spy because language ipso facto is a generalization. Language is an abstract ensemble of idiolects, sociolects, ethnolects, and other lects. When I talk about a language, I, by the virtue of talking about the language, generalize. So, of course, a linguist must generalize. So, as a generalization, there are cases of Aboriginal people deciding themselves get rid of their language, and this is a tragedy. This is a tragedy. And the facts are, out of 400 languages, only 12 languages are alive and kicking in Australia, which is 3% exactly. And then you have two more languages that are Creole languages. So you have 14 Aboriginal languages in Australia out of 400 languages. So two are new Creole languages, which is related to your perspicacious question earlier, and 12 are traditional languages that are still alive. What happened with the other languages? Most of them were subject to linguicide, language killing, but some of them were subject to what I call glottophagy. Glottophagy, language eating. For example, Pijanjara is eating another Aboriginal language called Yankunjara. So Yankunjara people in South Australia, they say, well, okay, let's forget about Yankunjara, Pijanjara, we understand, etc. So now they resort to Pijanjara. So it's not linguicide in the sense of the uh, government of Australia came and said, you're not allowed to speak Yankunjara. It's linguicide that happens in a more kind of gradual, more in quotation marks, civilized way, not like stolen generation. So what happens if you have a, you know, a native tribe that, again, their language is lost, they're not one of the lucky ones, and then another tribe, you know, their language comes back, and that language, do, do they take on that language because it's more similar to their cultural heritage? Or no. do they just go with, like, you know, English or nothing? Or, again, is there any benefit to okay, so look, somewhat I- of a closer language and culture that they had? So, of course, I've given you a case in which a similar language is being uh, kind of overtaken by uh, another language. But mostly, you cannot tell a Welsh person, look, Welsh is endangered, just speak Russian. It's an Indo-European language and that's it. You cannot, because, I mean, who cares about Russian in Wales? You cannot tell a Scottish person, well, who cares about Scottish? I mean, just speak English. I mean, what do you mean? And you cannot tell you know, like an, a, a Bangala person, well, look, Bangala is, uh, is a sleeping beauty before we reclaimed it. So just speak Adnyamatna because he is or she is Bangala. He's not Adnyamatna. You cannot just tell an Aboriginal person, just speak one Aboriginal oh. language in Australia. No, but what, if, what, if you're, um, what if you're in a group, again, that your language was lost? There's no books. There's no way to recover it that you know of. Oh, yes. So are, you either have cases. nothing or you have, you know, let's say English. So maybe you think to yourself, all right, look, this is at least somewhat close to our, our native language in terms of culture, custom, and everything. I'd prefer to do this than to do nothing. Does that happen? From my experience, if you have no material for their revival, and you have no pedagogy, you have no linguistics, uh, you just end up speaking colonizers' language. You do not want to speak a language which is of a different tribe just for the sake of saying, look, I'm not the uh, colonizers' uh, language. Uh, I'm not a speaker of the colonizers' language, but rather a speaker of the other tribe. Because don't forget one thing. It's not the case that all the tribes are united and they love each other, etc. In fact, there is a phenomenon these days called native title, which personally I feel it's a horrible thing. It's this idea of fighting for money as compensation for the loss of land. And this results in animosity between various tribes because everybody wants to get the money from the government or from BHP that um, is raping or slaughtering the land, etc. And uh, the result is that everybody hates each other. So, I mean, like all their tribes hate each other. And furthermore, and this is a very unfortunate reality, and of course, I'm telling you exactly what I think without any political correctness and stuff like that. The unfortunate reality is then you end up 
having animosities and feuds within the tribe itself, because some people want to get hold of the resources as opposed to other families within the same tribe. So needless to say, when you're fighting for native title, you're not going to get the, your enemy's language as your emblematic kind of Aboriginal language for everybody. Obviously not. So, I mean, Aboriginal people uh, might be kind of um, disliking another Aboriginal tribe as much as they dislike the uh, the colonizers, you know what I mean? So, so it doesn't work this way. It's just like you cannot tell, as I said earlier, you cannot tell an Irish person, because you know Irish is endangered, to get rid of Irish and to end up with Lithuanian, because both of them are Indo-European language. It doesn't, doesn't work this way, let alone the fact that in Australia we have two main categories of languages. One is the Pamanyungan languages, which means that these languages are related to each other, like Indo-European languages. But the other one, uh, the other category is the non-Pamanyungan languages, which include many, many families of languages that are unrelated to each other, as far as we can tell, uh, using the linguistic tools that we have today. Because Aboriginal people arrived in Australia, they hiked from Africa more than 50,000 years ago. So in 50,000 years, even if you came with one language, you end up having many, many different languages that are unrecognizable than, of course, mutually unintelligible. 50,000 years. Look at uh, English and German that people cannot understand. And it's just a matter of several um, uh, centuries, you know, uh, this kind of uh, divergence. So have you personally been involved in one or more revivalistic efforts where you've been there from the beginning and carried it all the way through? You know, have you been that patient crocodile that, that's helped any group of people to fully restore their language? Absolutely. So um, I have been involved in a plethora of uh, reclamations all over the world. But in the last 11 years, I have been the main revivalist of a specific language called Bangala. And this language is a sleeping beauty or a dreaming beauty. I use the term dreaming beauty to refer to a sleeping beauty which is Australian, because there is a term called dreaming or dream time or chukurpa, which refers to Aboriginal spirituality. A sleeping beauty is a term that I coined to refer to Hebrew, for example, that was a sleeping beauty for 1,751 years. Nobody spoke Hebrew as a native tongue from 135 AD until 1886 AD. So, oh, tell me, yeah, I heard, uh, I guess, what Eliezer Ben Yehuda was the one that reconstituted it. But what, like, why did it stop and when? And what's what's the history of this? you know, of Hebrew language going to sleep for that long? So uh, Hebrew was the language of uh, the Hebrew people from, say, 1300 BC until 135 AD. Jesus, who was a Jew, already spoke Aramaic as his mother tongue rather than Hebrew. He says, Eli, Eli, lama shebaktani, God, God, why have you forsaken me? Had he spoken Hebrew, he would have said, Eli, Eli, lama azavtani, but he said, shebaktani, which is Aramaic. Jesus said, Talitha kumi, which means young woman, wake up. But had he spoken Hebrew, he would have said, Nara kumi. So we know that Jesus, who was a Jew, of course, spoke Aramaic as his native tongue rather than Hebrew. At the time of Bar Kokhva, uh, who died, who was killed in Beitar in 135 AD by the Romans, of course, symbolically speaking, that was the end of Hebrew. So Bar Kokhva is the last symbolic speaker of Hebrew. And then, of course, Jews were uh, kicked out of Israel. They went to Mesopotamia, which is like Iraq today, and they ended up speaking Aramaic and other languages. So, for example, Ashkenazic Jews speak Yiddish. And when Eliezer ben Yehuda, who was not a linguist, but rather a politician, who understood that for nationhood, European nationhood, you need three components. You need lang, language, land, territory and lens heritage so we had the lens every jew said next year in jerusalem it doesn't matter whether genetically he's a khazar or genetically he was a swede who converted it doesn't matter the fact that you say next year in jerusalem every passover means that you have this lens this heritage but jews in the fundus at the end of the 19th century had neither a unifying tongue 
nor territory. Jews were stateless, just like uh, Romani, just like uh, gypsies. Yeah? And Ben Yehuda, who was born Perelman, of course, he was a Yiddish speaker, he understood that we needed a common language. And he decided to reclaim the Sleeping Beauty Hebrew. And this is why he went to Palestine in 1881. In 1882, Itamar, his son, was born. And in 1886, his son Itamar began to speak at the age of four. I repeat, he began to speak at the age of four. Why did he begin to speak at the age of four? Well, Ben Yehuda was crazy. He was a monomaniac, and you need a little bit of craziness to revive a language. He only spoke to him in a language that was not his mother tongue, namely Hebrew. So it's a little bit like you deciding to speak to your kids in, say, Latvian. And you know nothing about Latvian. You just learn it. It's not your mother tongue. You learn it. It's your heritage language. It's a... And then you speak to them in Latvian, it will take some time for them to open their mouth. Now, Itamar Ben Yehuda is the symbolic first speaker of what I call Israeli. Why do I call it Israeli? Because if you look at the grammar, if you look at the lexis, the vocabulary, if you look at every single aspect of Israeli, you can see the cross-fertilization in action between the Hebrew that Eliezer ben Yehuda and his friends were trying to reclaim, and the Yiddish that was their mother tongue. They hated Yiddish, but they could not get rid of Yiddish because you cannot escape your roots. Even if you hate your language, your mother tongue, you will end up having the accent of your language, of, of your mother tongue, the Weltanschauung, the, um, the worldview, the, the mindset of your mother tongue when you start speaking another language after puberty. I'm not saying before puberty. Before puberty, you can become a native speaker of Chinese. No problem. I send you from uh, Queens to Shanghai. When you're two, you'll be a native, native speaker of uh, Shanghainese as well as a native speaker of Mandarin. No problem whatsoever. When I was a child in Israel, we said in England, every stupid person speaks perfect English. Yeah, true. However, after puberty, you cannot speak the language natively. So Eliezer ben Yehuda spoke Hebrew, which is not his native tongue. And the result is that Itamar ben Avi, his son, as well as all the other first Israeli speakers, ended up speaking a language that is a mishmash. On the one hand, it's a phoenix rising from the ashes, that's Hebrew. On the other hand, it's a cuckoo laying its eggs in the nest of another bird, tricking it to believe that it is its own bird. This is Yiddish. On the third hand, it's kind of a magpie stealing from American, from Polish, from Russian, from Arabic. In fact, most swear words in Israeli are Arabic. So when you swear in Israeli, when you curse somebody, you use Arabic. So Israeli is a rara awis. It's a, it's a rare bird. It's a, it's a finny cuckoo cross with some magpie characteristics. And this is why to call it Hebrew is misleading because it's not an organic evolution of Hebrew. It's a hybridic genesis. It's a new language that is based on an old language on, and on a new language and many other languages. So Israeli reflects not only Hebrew, but also Yiddish. But coming back to your question about Bangala. So with Bangala, I have been doing it for 11 years together with the Bangala people. So I am only the facilitator. I am not the mother of the language. I'm the stepfather. The revivalist, the professional revivalist is not the real parent, the biological parent, he is just the stepfather or the stepmother. The mother is much more important. So, for example, when I talk to Bangala people and they tell me that they prefer the linguistic decision to be that, even though I know that linguistically it's kind of not a good decision, I can only inspire, I can only influence, but I cannot decide for them. I have to give them the wheel. They are at the wheel, the custodians the owners. In Australia, there is a very beautiful thing. There is a distinction between language ownership and language usership. You can own a language without using any word, and you can use a language like me without owning anything in it. So the aboriginal, the indigenous, the minority, the endangered are always at the wheel. Did Aramaic predate ancient Hebrew, and where did Yiddish come from? Okay, so Aramaic and Hebrew are practically sisters or cousins. 
So Hebrew comes from Canaanite, but Aramaic and Hebrew come from the same source, eventually Northwest Semitic, which is part of um, Semitic languages, which are part of Afroasiatic languages. So Afroasiatic languages include, for example, Cushitic languages like Somali and also Berber and Egyptian, in, not in the Arabic Egyptian, but in the Egyptian, like, uh, you know, about the hieroglyphs and stuff like that. So this is Afroasiatic, but then you have Semitic languages like Amharic, Arabic, uh, and then you have Aramaic and Hebrew that are very similar. For example, in Passover, we talk about Ha-Lachma-Aniya. Ha, this, Lachma, means Lachem, which is staple food. In Hebrew and in Aramaic, it means bread. But in Arabic, it means meat. And in Moroccan Arabic, it can mean fish. So it's a staple food, lachem. But in Aramaic, instead of saying ha lechem, which means the bread, you have to say lachem a. So the definite article comes after the word. This is why you say lachma rather than ha lachem. And aniya means poor, the, the poor, the poor bread. So ha lachma aniya in Hebrew, this is Aramaic, in Hebrew it would be ha-lechem ha-ani. So you can see that lachma aniya, ha-lechem ha-ani, are very similar to each other. So they come from the same source, they're sisters. Now, Jesus spoke Aramaic because Aramaic at the time of Jesus was already becoming the lingua franca, the language in common, and also the official language of the area. A little bit like French, in Europe, before English, you know that um, in the past, the diplomatic language of Europe was French. You know, there is a famous uh, story of uh, Josef Luntz, who was the um, foreign minister of the Netherlands. And uh, he went to visit JFK, John F. Kennedy. And uh, not speaking English, he spoke French, because French was a diplomatic language at the time. And he became the foreign minister of the Netherlands with French, not with English. And uh, the, the funny story uh, was that JFK tried to be nice to him. And he asked him, do you have any hobbies? And uh, he wanted to say, I breed horses. But in Dutch, the word for breed is fokken, F-O-K-K-E-N. So he told JFK, I fuck horses. And JFK said, pardon? And the guy said, yes, pardon. Because the word pardon in Dutch means horses. So in other words, ik fuck pardon means I breed horses. So when he said pardon, he said, yes, pardon. And JFK thought that Josef Luntz was very apologetic about fucking horses. But actually what he meant was, yes, horses. Ik fuck pardon. The reason he said I fuck horses was that French was a lingua franca at his diplomatic career, which preceded the foreign ministry. Now, coming back to your question, Aramaic and Hebrew are cousins or even sisters, although our, uh, Hebrew is closest to uh, Phoenician because both are Canaanite. But what is Yiddish? Yiddish is a continuation of German of the 10th century in Bavaria, in uh, Baden-Württemberg. And who were the Jews there? They were Latin speakers who moved from Italian, from Italy and France. And who were there? They, they actually spoke Aramaic. So what you have in Yiddish is it's a hybrid language, which is based on German with a substrata uh, from Aramaic, Hebrew and Latin. And it's a language that underwent Slavization or Slavonization following the bubonic plague, apropos the pandemic that we have now. In 1347, 1349, you had the bubonic plague that killed half of Western Europe. And one of the consequences was anti-Semitism because, you know, whenever there is a problem, some, somebody will accuse the Jews. And I mean, I, I even saw recently in Australia that uh, some uh, demonstrators, they said that it's because of the Jews, you know, all the lockdowns. I mean, you know, it's crazy. But at the time in Germany, people said, oh, it's the Jews who spread the disease, etc. So then the Jews had to uh, escape to Poland and to other places. This is when Yiddish underwent Slavization. So just to give you examples, when I want to say, let us say the blessing, the benediction in Yiddish, I say, Lomir Benchen. Benchen is benedicere. It's the same as benedicere in Latin. Benchen. Or when I uh, want to read from the Torah, I say, Lionen or Leonen. This is legere in, uh, in uh, Latin. 
or when I say to, to pray, I say davenen. Davenen is like davinare or divinare from, uh, from Latin, etc. So you, you can see yente. Yente is of the name of a person, of a woman. It's the same as gentile in Italian. So you can see some Latin substratum. When it comes to Hebrew, when I speak Yiddish, I say chob moire. I have fear. Moire comes from Hebrew. Mora. Mora is a Hebrew word for fear, you know. Or when I say, when you ask me, do you speak Yiddish? Let's do Yiddish. Avade. Avadai in Aramaic, of course. Ashaile, what a question. Akasha, what a kushia, what a, what a hard question. This is all Hebrew and Aramaic. So you can see that Yiddish has these substrata, so which means layers from other languages before it was German. But then you have the Germanic aspect of Yiddish. When I give a lecture, the Itztike or Arbet is gewidmet der Hashpoe from Yiddish of Ivrit Bichlal. You can see that there is a German component, but then Yiddish underwent a Slavization. So if you want to say curious in Yiddish, say Chikave. Chikave comes from, of course, Slavonic languages. Or if you want to say despite that, you say Chotsch. Chotsch is from Slavonic. And even if you want to say, how are you? You say, Vserzach, Vos Herzach. In German, if you say, Was hört sich, what's heard, it does not mean, how are you? Vserzach has to do with Slavonic languages. Like, for example, in Polish, Soswichach, what's heard, which means, how are you? In Russian, Stoslishna, what's heard, which means, how are you? In, say, Romanian, Chese Aude, What's so is, uh, is Yiddish like a, a big mashup with a lot of influences, like English is? Absolutely, exactly like Israeli is. So Israeli is similar to Yiddish with that respect. It's a mishmash, it's a hybrid, it's a cross-fertilized language, it's a fusion language, exactly like Yiddish. English is also very much influenced by French and uh, Latin. In fact, most vocabulary items in English are from French and Latin. Gem- German vocabulary is very small, is like a quarter, whereas Latin and, uh, and French are more than a half. Uh, but English is still, you can see, it's still a Germanic language, you know. Yiddish also, you can still see its Germanic uh, character, but... Israeli, you can see the mishmashness everywhere because it's a revival language. Yiddish is not a revival language. English is not a revival language. Yiddish and English are languages that evolved organically due to language contact. Of course, they changed. Shift happens. This is why you have linguists. Linguists love shift happening because shift is what makes us our work so interesting. But Israeli is not the result of, of an organic evolution with shift happening. Israeli ab initio, from the very beginning, is the result of a hybrid, hybridization between a language that does not exist as a native language, namely Hebrew, and a language that Eliezer ben Yudah hated but could not get rid of, namely Yiddish. So revival languages are a different category. When I revive Bangala, I know Neo-Bangala is not the same as the old Bangala. It has a lot of input from English, from Australian English, from German, which is a language of Klamor Wilhelm Schumann, from Israeli, which is a language of the revivalist, uh, me, your humble servant, etc. So it's a mishmash, and there is nothing wrong with hybridity. Hybridity is beautiful. A question here, so are there phrases or things that you can express in Bangla that have changed your mindset about it, that have taught you things or given you insight into this old language and this old culture? Absolutely. I'll give you several examples. So um, the word, say, wadlada, it means tree, but a very similar word means to tell a story. And then when a Bangla person speaks, he or she cannot avoid thinking of a tree in the context or in the echoing of telling a story. You know what I mean? So this is uh, one thing. Another thing, in Bangala, you only have three numbers. Guma, Gudara, Gaba. One, two, three. Guma, Gudara, Gaba. And you ask, why? Why only three numbers? Well, it's very simple. Hunter-gatherers do not need to count. You kill a kangaroo, you eat it, then you do nothing for one week. Then you kill another kangaroo. How many kangaroos would you kill at the same time? Three, max. You're not going to kill 1,000 kangaroos and put them in an abattoir and count all the tails, as I saw 
in an abattoir in Port Augusta. So you don't need numbers. So on the yeah, other what hand, if you have a, a tribe of more than three people? Is there just a word called many above three? I've Nala. heard, um, you know, Nala. a lot of uh, yeah, tribes will do that. Nala. So Guma Gudaragaba and then Nala, which means many. You're very right. And then on the other hand, in Bangala, when it comes to singular and plural, they laugh at English. Because in English, you can say one emu and then emus. In Bangala, if you see one emu, you say Waraija. If you see two emus, you say Warajalbili. If you see three emus or, or, or some emus, plural, you say Warajari. But if you see heaps of emus, you see suddenly, I don't know, like dozens of emus are kind of coming after you. You say Warajalyarana. Warajalyarana. So I repeat, you have Waraija, Warajalbili, Warajari, Warajalyarana. In other words, you have singular, dual, plural, and super plural. In other words, Bangala Aboriginal people, they have a much more convoluted distinction when it comes to counting in the plural singular realm. But when it comes to counting one, two, three, it's just gumagudaragaba and then nala as many. Another aspect of uh, Aboriginal languages in general and Bangala in particular, the number of pronouns is unbelievable. You have so many pronouns and they all tell you a story about how we are related to each other. So if we, I say I, it'll be different from we, which will be different from we too, which will be different from we too related to each other through a woman and we too related to each other through a man. So if I talk with my sister's child, it will be a different we too than if I talk with my brother's child. So in other words, when you look at English, like we, we can mean, can mean two, can mean three, we, just two of us, three of us. In Bangalore, you have many, many more possibilities. The kinship is so important in Aboriginal languages. So when we see, when we meet each other, say uh, you and I, well, maybe you will ask, you will ask me, where did you do your PhD? As well, I did it in Oxford. Uh, where did you study? Where did you go to school? Where do you, you know, uh, what, what do your parents do? But when Aboriginal people uh, see each other traditionally, it's like, how are we related to each other? And are you in the same generation as me? Am I allowed to marry you, etc., etc.? So you have many taboos. Another thing is that you're not allowed to mention somebody's uh, name two years after he dies or she dies, or one year, you're not allowed to show their their photo. You're not allowed to mention a word that uh, reminds you of their name. So for example, if God forbid Bill Clinton dies, Hillary Clinton goes to uh, the restaurant and at the end she says, excuse me, can I have the, the check please? Uh, she, Of course, she will say check anyway because she's American. But what I'm saying is that you cannot say the word Bill. Or if let's say Jack Nicholson dies, his wife goes to um, travels and she has a puncture. She tells uh, her friend, excuse me, can you bring the, ja- uh, the something from, you know, the Jack, but she cannot say Jack. So she has to say the something or the what's its name. So this is exactly what happens in Aboriginal cultures. Another thing, you are not allowed to speak to your mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law is a taboo. You're not allowed to speak to her. That, that might be a good thing for some people, you know. Yeah, the, in, in Yiddish, the word for mother-in-law, well, I think it's Schwieger, Schwiegerin, which, which has to do with silence. Uh, Schweigen is, uh, is uh, silence, you know. Wittgenstein said uh, when, when one has nothing to say, one has, has to, be, to be silent. Schweigen, he used the word Schweigen in German. But I, I know some people, instead of Schweigen, they say Schreiben. When, when, you have nothing to, to, when you have nothing to say, start writing. Instead of start being silent, they reanalyze Schweigen as Schreiben, you know, like, uh, which obviously is ridiculous because then they write when they have nothing to say. But yeah, Schwiegerin is like their mother-in-law. Very good. I know we've gone for quite a while. I mean, there's many things to ask you from here, but um, where can people find out more about revivalistics and your work? Where can they go? Firstly, they can uh, buy the book Revivalistics by Oxford University Press, New York. It's a relatively affordable book only $35. I negotiated that it would be a paperback, so it's not only for libraries. It's a book that tells my personal story from the promised land to the lucky country, from Israel to Australia via many other places. It's an academic book on the one hand, but it's also kind of an activist book, especially the second part. On the other, it is uh, it has a very kind of um, scholarly part, but it also has a very personal 
part. It has a lot of linguistics, but a lot of sense of humor. The other thing, one can go to MOOC, Massive Open Online Course, and take MOOC that I designed called Language Revival, Securing the Future of Endangered Languages. This is a free course online that consists of five weeks, five lessons with uh, some tasks, some videos. It's a wonderful course, Language Revival. A MOOC, it's called edX. edX, uh, it's part, it's, and Adelaide X is part of edX. Another thing is um, you can uh, Google Zuckerman, Z-U-C-K-E-R-M-A-N-N, Revivalistics, and you can find many videos. I interviewed uh, Howard Richards, the man I mentioned who was uh, kidnapped by the government, who was stolen. I uh, was interviewed once by Stephen Fry, my friend. I took him to... Um, Israel to see the Israeli language. There are some uh, videos about the Bangala language revival and also Babel, which is a company. They uh, We made a video about why we should revive languages. And there I explore the ethical, the aesthetic and the utilitarian benefits of language revival. So there is a lot uh, on the net. And um Yeah, I mean, just uh, remember revivalistics. And if you look at the book, you will be able to say revivalist sticks. I put a photo of some sticks. I like taking photos of sticks in the air and it's revivalist sticks. So it's like revivalistics. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Gilad, it's been a very cool call. And uh, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Richard. And anytime, uh, I'll be very happy to uh, talk to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.